Paul Newman, Simon Callow and Mitch Benn all feature this month. We have no less than two new quizzes, a look at the genteel history of a busy Worcester street, a complete two-part serial by Worcester's own Angela Lanyon, and even more in this May issue of the Worcester Talking Magazine. Hello, I'm Patrick Tansy with Jenny this month reading. Hello. Along with Sue Ward. Hello. And a new voice, Sue's husband, Jim. Hello. Now, I went to school in Dublin in the 1960s, so I was interested to read Simon Williams's thoughts about his school days at Harrow at roughly the same time. I should point out that the only similarity between my school and Harrow was they both had front doors. In the Telegraph magazine, he writes, It's wonderful how education has changed since I tried it. The teachers are kind and imaginative. They smile and wear clothes that ordinary people wear. They seem to actually like children, although they're not allowed to pat their backs or put a plaster on a sore finger. The carrot has proved mightier than the stick. Here's a nice example of what I mean. When a newly arrived Polish couple registered their son, who spoke hardly any English, at our local primary school, his teacher downloaded a number of popular Polish songs and got her class to learn them, so when the new boy arrived, they could all sing together. A win-win idea. For me, boarding school came as a horrible shock. What had I done to deserve exile? All the teachers were still jolly cross about the war. They'd growl at the sight of a Volkswagen or a Frankfurter. Their ancient tweed jackets were crying out, Take me to the cleaners! They smelt of three nuns' tobacco and had nicknames like Chalky or Slapper. They believed in learning the hard way. I before E except after C. Wallop, wallop, wallop. Teachers didn't need any qualifications. They just had to hate children. The crazy cost of private education didn't include looking for a child's potential. When the Latin master smacked me hard across the face, my pink glasses went skittering across the floor. They weren't easy to find amongst all the desks, what with the salt sting in my eyes. Dear sir, you are still at the top of my list of people I hope are rotting in hell. There were good times, of course, but mostly I just wanted to be a grown-up in mixed society, where I'd drive a Morris Traveller with a collie on the back seat. A fun part of the boarding day was bedtime. There were ten of us in my dormitory, and before bed we had to say our prayers. In my case, it was just a list of animals I wanted gentle Jesus to look after until the end of term. After that, Matron would open a ledger to record the details of our bowel movements. In turn, we'd call out the number of times we'd been. Silly boys, we played an early version of spoof, each of us betting on the dormitory's total output. With ten of us, a total of between ten and twenty was a reasonable bet. Being a W, I was always last to declare, so that tactically I sometimes had to make a bit of double figures or offer no score, so I'd be caught between liver salts and syrup of figs. A daft game, but you might want to give it a whirl one wet weekend.
A far cry from Simon Williams' schoolboy fun, a popular game these days, plays on a computer of course, is a kill-everyone-in-sight war game called Fortnite. As we shall hear in a moment, BBC war correspondent and world affairs editor John Simpson has dipped a toe into this fantasy world himself, but he's no stranger to the equally wild world of fashion. Jim reads John Simpson's piece, When Looks Could Kill. We're on a fashion shoot in China, on a usually forbidden stretch of the Great Wall. A Ukrainian model wilts in the midday heat. I'm here with my team, including Joe, the cameraman who marched with me into Kabul back in 2001, who is one of the finest and bravest in the industry. We are here to make a report for BBC News at 10, and later we'll interview the fashion designer Gao Pai in Beijing, whose dress the model is wearing. Gao Pai came to prominence in the West after she designed an unforgettable dress in yellow silk for Rihanna for the Met Gala in 2015. When Gao was growing up in the 1960s, men and women could only wear one type of clothing, the Mao suit, in either dark blue or black. A billion people seemed identical, but Gao's grandmother had visited the court of the last empress as a child and secretly told her stories of robes in the kind of colours that could get you killed for wearing in Mao's China, gold, scarlets and silvers. And now Gao is famous for designing clothes just like the ones her grandmother described to her. I watch as a dozen or more Chinese assistants gather around the model, pulling and tweaking the material of the dress, which even I realise is magnificent. Back home in Oxford, all that seems like a brilliant dream. I take my 12-year-old son to school, then head on to breakfast at Brasenose College, whose senior common room has very generously taken me on board. One of the dons, Chris McKenna, shows me a mysterious Georgian implement, a bit like those copper warming pans you see in antique shops. But this one has a shorter handle, is made of silver and has 12 small compartments, each with its own silver lid. As an enthusiast of Patrick O'Brien's Novels of the Sea, I recognise it instantly. It's the thing Jack Aubrey's waspish servant Killick uses for serving toasted cheese, the snack of choice when the captain and his secret service ship's doctor play their violin and cello duets on board. Chris wants a college evening of sea shanties and O'Brien readings, accompanied by Welsh, or Brasenose, rarebit, served in the silver implement. We start planning the programme. As the father of a pre-teen boy, my life isn't all lived in this high intellectual plane. My son Rafe, you see, has taught me to play a computer game called Fortnite, set in a fantasy world. I can appreciate the addiction as our avatars rampage through the landscape shooting everything in sight, but he beats me every time. I preferred Call of Duty, but my wife Dee, who in the days when she was my producer saw plenty of violence herself, thinks it's too bloodthirsty. While we argue, Rafe does a jolly little dance which requires great dexterity and grace. Don't try it. I work in London several days a week and usually gravitate to Covent Garden. A gin and something at the Garrick Club? 
a quick call into the Cecil Court bookshops, and a plate of oysters with D at Sheikis. Life doesn't get much better. Especially at the weekends when Rafe joins us, he shows a flattering interest in all my stories and still thinks I'm God. I give that another six months. I wonder what John Simpson is looking for when he visits the bookshops of Cecil Court. He's written several books himself, although you wouldn't expect to see them in an antiquarian bookshop yet. Maybe he just likes the look and feel of a well-bound volume, something he has in common with our own John Reynolds, who, needing a book rebinding a little while ago, took it up to the binding place in Worcester to find out what's involved. Hello, here we are at the binding place. Hello, Brenda, how are you? I've seen you you for a while. I've got this modern doctor book, modern in that it was uh, printed in 1935, but as you can see, it's falling apart and I'd like it rebound. Can you do it for me, please? I'm sure we can do something with it. It seems like um, it's been well used anyway, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, So what would you really like? Would you like it to be rebound completely or would you like to be able to save the outside cover, in which case we could actually inlay that? Um, the colour it is now at the moment with the cloth is uh, obviously been uh, subjected to the sunlight and uh, affected uh, the colour of it. So to match it, it would be quite difficult. So did you want to actually keep it looking as much mm. like the original? Or No, I think what I'd like is it to be sort of quarter or half bound in leather oh, right. and a buckram size because it, mm. it's, it's like a family heirloom. Oh, is it? Know. Oh, right, it means a lot to you then. Yeah. Yes. So I noticed inside you've got some... Uh, Oh, I'd like to keep those names and addresses. Names and addresses to be kept inside. Yeah, that isn't a problem. We can actually keep that one here because it's on the right-hand page. It's more difficult if it's on the left-hand page because that's actually fastened to the book. So in which case, Leslie normally would cut out that any inscriptions or or book plates and things like that and try to lift them and um, stick it back onto the original one if that's what you wanted. But because it's on the right-hand page, it's much easier to do that. Um, it looks like it needs a bit of a re-sew there, which is uh, yes. my department. Right. But Les is obviously his department is um, putting a nice new cover on it. So we take the old one off, and like I say, if you wanted to have that inlaid into um, I'd like the gold, new co- gold blocking, thing. please. You do gold yeah. blocking All on, right. the, on the So you, want the, you really want it to be like raised bands and um, yeah, yeah, uh, the full works. Book, full works, full on works, it. Yeah. Right, okay. We've got a, a mortgage of you taken out <laughs> for this. <I> think. <laughs> Can be quite expensive right. uh, for so, these days. Could you show me how it, it will, what is entailed in this, mm-hmm. and how the book will go round your little factory? Okay. Yes. And that's how it all started. If I sound just a bit technical, it's because I was once a bookbinder, and of course, as they say, once a bookbinder, always a bookbinder. At least, never mind what they say. That's what I say, and that's what matters. By the way, Brenda was referring there to Les. He is Brenda's husband, and until they both retired, they worked together in a small industrial unit, and collectively they were known as the Binding Place. The company was known as the Binding Place. They are actually known as Mr and Mrs Stallard. That's Les and Brenda. Now then... Let's get back to the book and Brenda. What's the first thing you've got to do to my dilapidated book? Take yeah. it to pieces? Take it to pieces, that's right, pieces. yes. Intersections, again, and replicate what I've just said to you, really. So there will be grooves in the back of there, which I would be able to put the tapes in and see how it was originally sewn. If not, I can... If it's just the paper content is a bit um, 
thin. I mean, that's quite a nice, solid sort of paper. Some of them are very fragile, I think, some of them are. So in which case, uh, I sort of use my home sewing machine then to actually make a single section, but it would be a straight stitch. So when you sew it together and and glued up the back, what's the next process? That then makes it into a working book again, which then I would bring over here and tap down on the back of the spine. What do you tap it down with? Um, a nice hammer. A hammer? Yeah, a flat hammer that's... Um, right. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, there, it's on the guillotine there. That's the one. Ah. Yeah, so it would be uh, just to get rid of the swelling that's in being re Yeah, because when you've sewn it, it, um, it, it obviously the sections swell out, don't that's they? That's right, yeah. So it just would be... sewing. Yeah, that's right. So I just... And this is one you did before. Well, that's right, I think. These are, these are obviously all being joined together now, but it must be single sections, in which case then I would put underneath the guillotine push the clamp down to hold it in place and then hammer away quite nicely to get rid of the swelling but I've obviously already made these into this book I've got here into a, a section but that would what I would do before I actually sewed the book together so right. it's just really getting rid yeah. of the swelling and so that's when I go to my frame and I sew it. So I suppose it's needle and cotton time literally. My book is now taking on a new life. Let's assume it has been sewn but it's still got a long way to go yet. Anyway, it's time to meet Brenda's husband. Here we are at the binding table with Les the binder. Brenda's shown me what she's going to do to it. What are you going to do to it? I start by putting end papers on. What's an end paper? An end paper is a folded sheet of paper um, which then produces the board paper and the fly leaf at the end of the book so that you can attach the the case to the book. First of all, I have to uh, glue the spine up the spine, that's the, the back. That's isn't the it? back. No, it's not like the the back last sheet of the book. That is the. No, that's the back of the. It's a bit it's, hard it's, it's to a, it's a back describe. Of the, back of the sections. Yes. Um, we have to glue that up. For your book, it doesn't need cutting because it's already been cut previous. Um, so the end papers would be cut to match your book. Yeah. Um, I then uh, what we call round and back it. Uh, with the hammer, with the same hammer. When you say round and back it, what does that mean? You have to put a, a round in the book um, so that uh, it will keep its shape. When, around in the book, is that the spine you're yeah, rounding? Um, and then we put it in our backing machine. What's this? Is this this uh, ancient looking thing over here? That's it, John. It's basically two jaws that with one of the foot pedals you clamp it up. We've got a handle at the top to alter the width of the jaws depending on how thick your book is you put the book in the jaws yeah we put the book in the jaws and leave approximately three to five millimeters of the spine sticking out and then clamp it up then what we do with that is from the center of the spine to the the front front of the book you just tap the sections over so that when you've tapped it over the what we call the joint that's left of three to five millimeters it is around about the same thickness as the board that you're going to use for the for the cover how that happens is that when the boards are on there you get a smooth circle around it so and then the the, the joint actually really does make it so that the book won't go that go, go out of shape whereas modern books these days that are flat backed when you put them on the shelf you'll find that the weight of the paper will make the make it the uh, paper drop and that puts strain on the uh, on the spine oh is that why they fall apart yeah oh. so easily yeah, yeah yeah and we are still with les now you've got to make the case yeah so that's fitting the back of the spine with the leather 
the corners with the leather and now you've got to put what, what are we going to use on the actual front and back of the book? Well, you, well, you said you wanted buckram, yes. John. I've actually got... This is marble, handmade marble paper that I'm working on at the moment, whereas we would swap that for buckram. It's, it's done in exactly the same way. What's the next step now? We've got this case. The next step is, uh, depending on what you want on the spine... Yeah, I'd like le- gold, gold blocking, yes, please. Um, with, the, with these cases, which will be similar to yours, um, I've had to have made a blocking die, which is basically a magnesium plate that has had a... Oh, yeah. So I send the artwork of, of the design that I want. So this is, this is a metal plate. It obviously stands heat, does it? Yeah. It has, um, to, it has to stand about 120 degrees. Right. Uh, it's a rather nice, intricate design. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight... Eight of these uh, same design, and that on the finished book that is gold across the spine or the back of the book, so that when it's on the shelf and it's got the volume and the date, so you can read and see on the shelf what the book looks like. That, is that right, Les? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. it. And finally, although I'm being shown how it all happens with another book, here's the one I made earlier. I'm still looking forward to mine being rebound and stopping it from falling apart at the seams. That happened to me some years ago and I'd hate it to happen to my precious book. This is Les again. And so that's it. I can come and collect it, won't you? Tomorrow? You, yeah, John, you, you know better than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks very much, Les. Yeah, my um, pleasure. How long have you been here? In this building, six years. How long have you been actually bookbinding? 52. 52. Man and boy. Yeah. Right. And I don't know which way around, John. No, no, no. And Brenda, how long have you been doing bookbinding and finishing? Bookbinding. Oh, a lot. Oh, whilst bringing up the children really I think it's just been a bit um, intermittent really I think uh, it's always our decision wasn't nearly it? four well, years what, since four years or four forty I thought we said four I was going to say yeah. gosh I haven't been paid well enough have I had <laughs> four so did you yes. meet in, you know through work or no we didn't actually I think I used to work blind in, date I used to work in an estate agents and he used to work in the book binders across the road uh, this was in Oxford and I used to see him scooting by and uh, I thought Yes, he looks quite dapper, I'm thinking. It's suntan, yes. You vaulted a bit. Yeah, yeah. Right. yes, it's a suntan that attacked me. Yes, that was a bit uh, shallow, wasn't it? But, uh, yeah, we've lasted, uh, was it 44 years, is it? Yes, work alongside each other for most of the time as well. So, yes, it's worked well. Yes, it wasn't something I'd originally planned to be. Until they retired recently, Les and Brenda Stallard ran a company called The Binding Place at the Venture Business Park in Worcester. My book, by the way, was The Modern Home Doctor, 1935. 1935! And I now have it repaired and returned. Once I can train the leeches, I'll be able to start treating myself again. Mind, that sounds a bit drastic for a sore throat. Our two-part story this month itself begins with an old book, written by Angela Lanyon, an adventure story that might make even John Simpson nervous. Barney Burnham reads, Them Dar Hills. If it hadn't been for the refusal of the junk dealer to sell me the book, I don't suppose I should have been so fired up. To a pantomime enthusiast, the legend of Al-Adin, printed in 1703, was irresistible. 
Leather-bound, but falling apart. I didn't understand why he wanted to keep it. There were several pages missing, 63 to 69 to be precise. Told me it was his lucky mascot. Wasn't worth anything, he said. But nothing I offered would persuade him to change his mind, and I left the shop angry and disappointed. A year later, I was back in Plymouth, this time as one of the pirates in Dick Whittington. I'm an actor. Well, that's what I tell myself. And once the show was up and running, I was at a loose end during the mornings. It was a sunny morning, and so I wandered down to the Barbican in the hopes that he'd changed his mind. I was wasting my time. Outside the shop was a huge rubbish-filled skip with books and papers blowing everywhere. "'Help yourself, mate,' said the bloke in charge when I asked if I could look through the clutter. "'The old fellow's gone for recycling.' No chance of the book. Anything worth having had been snapped up by dealers, but there was no harm in looking. And that's how I found the diary, and tucked in a pocket at the back the missing six pages of the book. I didn't get the opportunity to study it properly until I was back in London, and then, if it hadn't been for Jerry, I might have abandoned it. You remember Jerry? Did Middle Eastern studies or some such at uni, and was now considered an expert on Central Asia? Works for the Foreign Office now. Good Lord, he exclaimed when he saw the diary then explained that it was written in an obscure Central Asian script. Intrigued, while he tried to decipher it, I took notes. This is astounding! The fellow must have been out in the area during the war and gone AWOL to search for treasure. I can't make head and a tail of some bits, but how did he learn this amazing script, and what does he mean about a map? Up to then, I hadn't mentioned the legend of Al-Adin, but I brought out the pages that had been concealed in the back of the diary and spread them on the floor. Other way around, old chap, Jerry advised. Scripts like this run from right to left, like China, you know. South is always at the top of the map. Reversing everything suddenly made sense. Squiggles became trees, hills and dunes appeared, and what I'd thought of as carrots became minarets. Wow, this is great, see? Jerry pointed to a series of small cubes. It's a town, and if we follow this road... We? I asked. You're thinking of going to look for this cave... Why not? What an opportunity! I've a spot of leave coming up, and anyway, you're resting. The upshot was that two weeks later we were disembarking from a plane carrying rucksacks stuffed with camping gear and with the junk dealer's diary and map safely tucked in Jerry's jacket. We spent the night in a backpacker's hostel and the following morning set off eastwards. For the first few miles we followed the road where bent and faded signs acted as waymarks. After walking for nearly three hours, Jerry called a halt. Sitting on a boulder, he brought out the map. We're here, he said, jabbing at the map, and we want to be over there. I followed the direction of his pointing finger, but could see nothing. However, he was the expert. Scooping away the sand, we filled our water bottles at a convenient cistern and struck off the road and started southwards, the wind scouring our faces. We saw no one but after we'd been walking for a couple of hours, climbing steadily the whole time, I noticed what looked like a cluster of houses. Abandoned village, Jerry informed me. Key point on the map, we turn west. But we've just come from that direction, I protested, putting people off the trail. Jerry said the village was deserted, but moving between the houses, I had the uncomfortable feeling we were being watched. We slept in our tents that night, and for two more freezing nights before we reached rocky hills breaking the skyline. 
A crest that looks like a man sleeping with his mouth open. Look out for that. And two broken minarets. After 200 years, I protested. Eroded a bit, but I expect they're still there. Sure enough, they were. And once I'd got my eye in, I could see the landscape relating to the map. Two more days and we were well into the hills and it was getting colder by the minute. We'd rationed our food, although water was always a problem if we were to avoid dehydration. But on the fifth day, we reached what Jerry said was our destination, a blank rock, except for two horses carved into its face. What now? I asked. This is where you come in, he said. Remember the magic word, abracadabra? If I say abracadabra, the rock will split open. I don't know, but it's worth a try. I tell you, I could have hit him. Trailing all this way, hungry, thirsty, footsore and frozen stiff, and then he tells me, You're an actor, he went on. You're used to using your voice. Rock resonates. These hills are honeycombed with caves. Try a few notes. You must be joking. We tried all afternoon, abracadabra, on every note in the scale. Then Jerry tried, and I tried again until I was hoarse. I must clear my throat, I said, before I try again. I took a sip of water and tentatively hummed my home note. Be flat, abracadabra. There was a rumbling sound, and in front of us the rock split open and a dark passage showed itself. We were both too taken aback to do more than gape. I suppose we will be able to get out, I asked. Soon find out, Jerry dived in. Picking up our packs and pulling out a torch, I followed him in, and almost immediately there was a loud rumbling sound and everything went dark. The opening had closed. I flicked on the torch. A tunnel led away from us. No sign of fabulous jewels, only footprints in the sticky, black, sandy floor. Jerry's voice echoed down the gallery. We couldn't go back. So we had to go on, and what seemed like hours later, we stumbled across a dead man. Leathery skin stretched over stick-like bones. There were chests. Maybe they had once held treasure, but now they were empty. The air's fresh, Jerry muttered when we'd continued along the passage for another hour. By my watch, it was getting towards sunset. Make camp now, shall we, he said. Things will look better in the morning. But will they? It's beginning to sound like a story out of Indiana Jones. We'll find out what treasure awaits our intrepid pair later. The biblical Holy Grail, chased by Indiana Jones, was also featured in the 1954 film The Silver Chalice, Paul Newman's film debut. After a glittering career featuring numerous awards, Paul Newman died in 2008. But in the Telegraph magazine this year, His daughter, Clea, painted a picture of life with the man she knew simply as Dad, Jenny. I realised early on that my parents were famous. Walking down the street in New York City with my sisters, people would tap us on the shoulder and, pointing at my mum and dad a few strides ahead, say, Do you know who that is? That's Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Who? we'd reply, smiling to each other. I was trampled on in Los Angeles by a rush of photographers trying to get to my parents. A little unnerving, 
but I brushed it off quickly. Crowds of them would often trail us out of a restaurant and down the street, but Mum and Dad wore their fame lightly and were always so generous and calm when people approached them that it never felt too intrusive. If someone came up to Dad and he wasn't in the middle of a private dinner with the family or something, he'd say, well, do you want to have a beer with me? But though fame wasn't something that preoccupied my dad, I know he cherished the times when he could just be himself. Dad never wanted his legacy to be as acting. He really wanted his charity work to be what people remembered. He started a free camp, Serious Fun Children's Network, 30 years ago, where sick kids could, in his words, raise a little hell. For both of us, our hobbies were our great leveller, the thing that kept us grounded and focused. For Dad, it was racing car driving. For me, it was show jumping. And both of us loved nothing more than watching each other compete. Dad was competitive. I inherited that particular gene and had always been a pretty good athlete. But despite spending his life on film sets, he always said he never really found his people until he started racing in his 40s. In racing, he found his community that he just loved to be around. It was a tight-knit group of guys who didn't care that he was Paul Newman, the movie guy. I felt the same way about horse riding, and he loved that I was so passionate about it. It's the most important lesson he ever taught us, I think, to find your passion and pursue it wholeheartedly. Dad came to watch me compete all over the country, whenever he could. I had a horrible fall once when I was jumping at Madison Square Gardens, age 16. My parents were sitting in the stands, and when my horse and I flipped over a jump, I was told afterwards that my horse appeared to cartwheel across the ring. Everyone thought I was dead. My dad ran down the back of the seating and jumped over the barrier into the ring. He was by my side before I sat up. I remember opening my eyes and looking up at him standing over me and saying, exasperated, Dad, what on earth are you doing in the ring? When you're competing at a high level, the most embarrassing thing is to have your dad leaping into the ring mid-competition. I'm sure there must have been some sideways glances exchanged when Paul Newman bounded onto the course, but it was so typically him, because first and foremost, before the Hollywood movie star or the champion racing driver, he was just my dad. Yeah, Interesting to hear how relaxed Claire thought her father was when pursued by fans in the street. In an interview with Ian Johnston for Film 82, Newman said how much he hated all that attention and had indeed by then stopped signing autographs altogether. Nevertheless, in the world of movies, Paul Newman remains an icon. Another icon of the 20th century would have to be the legendary aircraft Concorde. Back in 2003, Lewis Wilde was a photographer charged with capturing an image on film of the legendary aircraft on its final flight. Sue? So much of photography is about being in the right place at the right time and on this day it just so happened that the right place was on the side of a helicopter at 3,000 feet, unable to feel my hands or face and waiting for one of the world's most iconic aircraft to pass below me. I was 26 
and I'd only been hired as a photographer by Southwest News Services a few months earlier. I saw on the office calendar that Concord would be making its final flight at the end of November, taking off from Heathrow with 100 British Airways pilots and cabin crew aboard, before soaring over Bristol and landing at its final resting place, the base of the former British Aircraft Corporation at Filton, where it was built, and from where the first British test flight was made in 1969. I put my name down for the job. I was an aviation fan and keen to see Concorde fly, but I was also eager to make an impression. That enthusiasm landed me the last space in a helicopter hovering above the plane as it flew over the Clifton Suspension Bridge. I say space, but there actually wasn't one left. As the day neared, I heard that a TV crew had taken all the seats in the chopper, so my place would be standing, strapped out on the skids, effectively perching outside. I'd never done anything like that before. To top it off, I was scared of flying in those days too. I received some training before we took off, but I knew it would all be over so quickly that I had to keep my mind on what I needed to do, ignoring the fact it was so cold that I could barely adjust my camera settings. The idea was to line up Bristol's greatest engineering triumphs from two different centuries, Brunel's suspension bridge and Concord. But there were a lot of variables. Would we be too far away? Would the plane on the dark cliffs be too much of a contrast, leading me to overexpose Concord and capture a blurry white arrow? In the helicopter, we waited in our chosen spot and when Concord approached, I was so excited I took 10 pictures instantly, then realised I had to wait for the bridge. This was before cameras could shoot bursts of dozens or hundreds of shots in one go, so timing was important. It passed under at 1,500 feet, so I snapped and hoped. And it worked, although I didn't know it at the time. We landed at Filton Airfield and continued to take photos of Concord from the ground, but it was only when I was editing my images in the press room that I realised I had something special. Other photographers gathered behind my laptop their faces dropping as they said mine would be the one picture every paper would print. It's a deflating feeling I know all too well now, but at the time I had no idea that my picture would have that effect. Most papers did indeed take my image for next day's coverage, and poster-side souvenir versions were produced too, one of which my mum bought. I look back now with pride. The experience taught me a lot about taking your chance and it guided my career in a way. I went on to work in news photography for a long time. As for Concorde, it's now 50 years since the aircraft's first flight 
and it remains an astonishing engineering achievement. This final flight was a fitting end to its service and I feel privileged to have been there to capture it. And no, I'm not scared of flying anymore. I'm sure we all remember Concord, even if you have a memory as bad as mine. John Plush has an exercise for all of us folk suffering from failing mental recall. So here's a party game you might have come across. I used to play it when I was a child. It's the memory game, and I was better at it when I was a child. You know it. You're all sitting in a room, and someone brings in a tea tray with a cloth over it. Under the cloth would be about eight small objects. The cloth is removed, and we all study the objects for ten or fifteen seconds, and then the cloth is replaced, and the tray taken away. After a few moments, the tray is brought back, uncovered once more, and... Behold, one of the objects is missing. Your mission is to identify which object has gone. Simple, huh? Of course, you can play this game with noises instead of objects. Noises like a popping cork, a closing door, a dog barking. If I played you those and five more sounds to make a sequence of eight noises in total and then played just seven of them again, You could work out which sound I've missed out, no? Let's give it a try. The first three you've already met. And the rest... Eight sounds. Can you remember all of them? I'll play all eight again. Got that? So now I'll play them again, but this time I'm going to miss one out. So, who's missing? Here are the seven again. And the missing one is... The popping cork. Have another go. Only seven sounds, but this time the popping cork is back in. Which one is not? If you want to hear the seven noises again, press your track back button, the leftmost button of the three. It's the football rattle. One last go, and really to mess you up, I'm going to play them in a different order. The cork's still popping. The rattle's back in the game. But one of the other original sounds is missing that wasn't missing before. (laughs) Press the track back button to hear those again. Did you spot it? said it was easy. 
Who is this man? Is he allowed out on his own? No, it's very good. Coming up... Simon Callow in prison. The etiquette of waving. Simon Williams breakfasting with a giant of the art world. And the nail-biting conclusion to our story of the bickering heroes stuck in a cave somewhere in Central Asia. But before any of that, Mitch Benn, author, political commentator, but mainly satirical songwriter and performer. You might recognise Mitch as the voice of Elvis on Steve Wright's show on BBC Radio 2, or as a star of The Now Show on Radio 4. He's also appeared on one of the nation's favourite quiz shows, as we'll hear in a moment, and in Worcester's Huntington Hall, which is where John finally caught up with him. So, so it's not often you, you come across someone who's won Mastermind. But Mitch Benn has. He won Celebrity Mastermind a couple of years ago. But he's better known as a stand-up comedian and singer of satirical songs. And he's here in Worcester. The time is getting on for 10 o'clock at Huntington Hall. He's just finished the show tonight. And I'm going to grab him for a quick chat while he's clearing up. Mick. The first thing I noticed about you was that you're born in Liverpool. Yes. But your Scouse accent is not extreme. It's vestigial, as I would describe it. Why um, that? Uh, I haven't lived there for 30 years now. I've lived in lots of other different places. And I was a bit middle class to start with. So I probably sound like your average lower middle class northerner as opposed to specifically Scouse. Um, if I'm in Liverpool for more than about a weekend, then I start talking like this by the time I get home, you know, I just can't help it. And if I start talking to anybody else in Liverpool, that's the other thing, or, or just start thinking about my childhood, you know, and then it starts coming back. But I think that happens with all kinds of accents. I mean, Liverpool is definitely where I'm from. And I go back there a lot now because my, uh, my dad died about 18 months ago, so I now make a point of going back, you know, just to spend as much time with my mum as possible. And um, Liverpool, has got to be said, it's, it's, it's in a much healthier state now than it was when I was a kid. Uh, when I was growing up in Liverpool, it was kind of a place you left, if I'm honest. Uh, whereas now, it's kind of a place that you move to. That's the main indicator. It's funny you bring up accents. That's one of the main indicators that Liverpool is in healthier state now than it was when I was growing up there. Is because you hear something in Liverpool now, which you did not hear in my day, which is accents other than scouts. Because nobody was moving in. Now people are moving in. There are people from elsewhere living in Liverpool, which was kind of unheard of in my day. I've always known that my mum was basically pursued around the playground at primary school by a tiny Richie Starkey when they were both eight years old. R tiny Richie Starkey had a massive crush on my mum. It's actually mentioned in the Hunter Davis's, in Hunter Davis's Beatles book as being Ringo's childhood sweetheart, which is hilarious. What I didn't know was that she successfully fended off a drunk and handsy John Lennon after a Quarrymen gig about ten years later. So um, by the time she was, I think, 17, had turned down half the Beatles. She's awesome, my mum. She started learning the drums about six months ago. And uh, so my mum's been learning the drums. And she also used to be a tap dance teacher in the 60s, so she's going back to tap classes. At the age of 77, she's starting tap classes again. And she went to the beginners and found she was too good, so she bumped herself up to intermediates. Anyway, Is yes. that musical background? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my parents were sort of um, folk club strummers in the early 60s. You know, they were sort of... They would sort of you know, go to folk clubs and sing in harmony. I, the weird thing is, I grew up in a house full of guitars, but I didn't start playing the guitar until I was about 14, 15. Uh, when I was 11, my primary school acquired a double bass from somewhere, and I was the tallest kid in the school by about six inches. 
So I was like, you, huge child, play this. So I was essentially press ganged onto the, um, onto the double bass. Can you follow me up onto the stage? Because I'm just going to dismantle the rhythm. Yes, and then I, so I, I played double bass in youth orchestras for most of the 80s. I've never owned one. I'd like to get hold of one from somewhere because it's a great fun instrument to play. And then when I was about 14, 15, weirdly, I started tinkering on these guitars which had been in my house the whole time. And thank God I did because it's been basically my livelihood ever since. So. You, you do a lot of television, a lot of radio. I've not done that much TV. I've done bits and pieces of TV. I've done kind of sporadic bits of TV. I did a couple of the stand-up shows, but I never did. I've never done any of the BBC's big stand-up shows. I've never done Live at the Apollo or a Roadshow or any of that. What often happens is a lot of those shows are produced by companies who are also comedy management companies. And they kind of, for obvious, entirely understandable reasons, give very preferential treatment to their own clients. And, and then what happens is, if one of these management companies starts making a very successful TV show, then a lot of comedians start ditching their management and signing with them. So suddenly they end up with a massive client roster, so they literally have no need to talk to anybody else. So that's, you know, that's some of the underlying stuff that maybe the, the public don't always see. That's, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of politics in this. But also, maybe I'm just not very good. That's another possibility. That's true. Well, I don't know. But one of the things is about being the musical comics is... Um, it, I, I'm, I'm quite fortunate in that I've sort of cornered a little market of the business, but the trouble with corners is you get painted into them. And uh, one of the reasons I'm really enjoying doing my newspaper column now is obviously by definition it's got no musical content because it's print. Uh, and I quite like the idea of you know, being a sort of commentator slash pundit but without always playing the guitar all the time. Just because, for, you know, while I've done quite well as a live comic, you don't, for example, I can't get on any of the panel shows. And I think at least part of that is, well, he's the song guy. As far as the broadcast industry is concerned, I don't necessarily have a reputation for, you know, ready, ready banter and spoken word wit. Now, of course, I know that I'm doing my touring show or playing comedy clubs, you know, three or four nights a week. There's a lot of banter and blether between the songs. But by the same token, such reputation as I have is as the song guy. And the other thing is that, You'd, as a musical comic, you don't always get a lot of respect from other comedians. Uh, and I know why that is, and it's understandable. It's that it is possible, as a thoroughly mediocre musical comic, to succeed in a way it's not possible to succeed as a mediocre stand-up. If you're just standing there with a the mic telling jokes, if you want to play an absolute blinder and get encores and have everybody, you know, you've got to be a bit good. Whereas it is possible to rock up with a guitar, to go on at the end, when they're drunk enough for a sing-song, get a bunch of rude words to run to the tune of Wild Thing, and you're sorted, right? What that means, the flip side of that is, if you're trying to do something maybe a little bit more considered with musical comedy, like I like to think I am, you don't necessarily get credit for it however well you do, because it's like, well, it's easy for him, he's a guitar act. Well, it depends. It depends what you're trying to do. You know, I mean, the kind of stuff that I do, it's, it's not always easy because cause I don't do this sort of singing rude words to other people's tunes thing. Oftentimes, you know, I begin a song and people don't even know where I'm going with it until I get to the first chorus, by which time you can have lost them. So what I do in musical comic is by no means a sure thing. But the, 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 the general kind of feeling amongst other comedians can be the sort of, you know, rock it up with a guitar is just take an easy way out. But I think I've now been around long enough for most people to get that that's not really the case with me. You've got to do the stuff that you think is funny. If you do stuff that you don't think is funny, but that you suspect your target audience will, or if you're 
you know, writing songs or writing books that you don't like, but you suspect your target market will like it, then by the time it gets out into the world, nobody's actually liked it yet. And as such, it's entirely possible that nobody will. Certainly at my stage of the uh, level of the business, I think it's important to do stuff that you think is good, because that way, by the time it gets out to the rest of the world, at least one person has thought this is funny. And as such, it's exponentially more probable that other people will think it's funny. Because, you know, I'm a bit eccentric, but I'm not that bleeding odd. The stuff I think is funny, a lot of people will think it's funny. And also, the trouble with getting too focused with a particular demographic is if you identify your target market too assiduously, then first thing you do is patronise the hell out of them. Because you say, ah, yes, I know all about you. My research tells me what you will like. And here, here's a thing you will like. So you've immediately patronised your actual target market and you've alienated everybody else. Because you told everybody else that this is not for you, move along, this is not for you. So for whatever reason, your target market doesn't go for it, either because they pick up on being condescended to it, because it's just not that good. You've already told everybody else to go away. So I think it, it, just do what you think's good. Your mastermind. <laughs> oh, my celebrity mastermind. Your celebrity mastermind. Yeah. Your specialist subject was Peter was Cook. Peter Cook, it wasn't me. And... <laughs> I think it's fair to say that, that his humour was largely word-based. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think yours is not terribly visual. No, <laughs> I don't go out of my way to be visually funny, it just kind of happens. Presumably you, you find that there's more comedic value, potential value, in words than in pictures. Well, I've been on the radio for most of my career. Had I been a TV comedian, if I'd been given, you know, if I'd pursued this kind of thing, and if, for example, I'd got my own sitcom at some stage of proceedings, then who knows, I might have done, like, you know, entire five-minute dumb show sections. You think that everything's all over and done with and you get to my kind of age, but then you think, well, hang on, Dave Johns became a movie star at the age of 60. You never can tell. Weird shit still happens at whatever kind of stage of your career you're at. You know, it's, it genuinely isn't over till it's over, but... In the meantime, I'm just getting on with the stuff I've got to get on with. Well, better let you get on with what you're I'd probably better hand yeah, that because I'm also. Just now, Mitch Ben, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. I want an African baby, everyone else has got one. I want an African baby, quickly before they're all gone. I want an African baby, bring me a small one right here. Cause a baby from Somalia or someone is on all the celebrities are wearing this year. I'm just searching for a third world engine whose poor little life's a drag And such a lovely shade of brown when I take him into town he'll match my shoes and bag I want an African baby, I really want one so bad Honey before that all snapped up by Angelina and Brad And when I pose with him for pictures, I look so sickly and cool Then I'll drop him off with his nanny till he's old enough for boarding school A thoughtful Mitch Ben there, leading John Plush, a merry dance around the stage of Huntington Hall. Jenny? The forcing of rhubarb was first developed in West Yorkshire in the 1800s in a nine-square-mile area known as the Rhubarb Triangle. Here, mature plants are lifted from the soil and moved away to heated forcing sheds, where, deprived of light, they send out tender, vividly coloured stems. Farmer Chris Chin wondered, why can't we leave the rhubarb crowns where they are on the field and somehow remove the light from them there? Originally a mechanical engineer, in 2003 frustrated with his job, Chin returned to work on his family's farm in Herefordshire's Wye Valley, where he now oversees the harvesting, packing and processing. His brother Henry looks after the planting. 
Established by his great-grandfather in 1925, Cobbury Farms covers 3,000 acres and the family also grow asparagus, blueberries and potatoes. A few years after his return, Chin realised that forced rhubarb was becoming increasingly fashionable and by working with chefs such as Mark Hicks, he discovered a gap in the market. Anyone who wanted rhubarb beyond March had to move to the outdoor variety. It's greener, more tart and tougher, which is absolutely fine for pies, he said. But the delicate, sweeter pink stems allow chefs and more adventurous home cooks to do something smarter, he says. Chin devised a new, innovative method of growing the vegetables under a polythene sheet. It's black on one side and white on the other, so we can then control the amount of solar radiation that converts to heat. After the rhubarb is planted, it's left to grow for two or three years until it's ready to harvest. We cover it up in January and February before the buds start to grow. It's important that the full stem is grown without light. Once the stems are 8 to 12 inches long, the crop is harvested by hand. You have to be quite careful, Chin says. It turns a dark, bluey-black colour if it's bruised. Picking has to be done at dawn or dusk to minimise exposure to light. For Chin, it's been a success. The first year, we sold two tonnes to Waitrose, and now we sell 50, he says. This year, he wants to extend the season to the middle of July, and one day he hopes to offer year-round forced rhubarb. We'll just keep trying, he says. Rhubarb. Presently, I'm on medication, and they say, don't take this with rhubarb. That's true. It's a banned substance. Worcester offered plenty of space for growing rhubarb back in the 18th century, when green fields and pastures stretched from Sansom style outside the city wall near the site of the present Roman Catholic Church, north to the hamlet of Barbourne, and as far east as Rainbow Hill. Mike Price, writing in the Worcester News, takes us back to the genteel leisure pursuits of those days. When radio, let alone television, was still a long way off, the principal leisure activity of the general populace was to go for a walk. This despite the fact that most walked to work anyway. But the leisure walk, or promenade, was altogether different from the walk to work. It was a time and place to see and be seen. Local scribe Laird wrote in 1818 that the principal walk or mile was in Sansom Fields, for which Worcester was indebted to the taste and liberality of Sir Charles Trubshaw Withers, who laid open to the public a very agreeable line of footway traversing a great portion of the pasture ground of his own premises on the eastern limits of the city. At the southern end of this was his mansion and the walks consisted of a gravelly way shaded on each side by elms with footpaths leading to pleasant rambles in the adjoining fields. The gravelly way was later called Sansom Fields Walk, now just Sansom Walk. It was a favourite promenade of the inhabitants, especially the Bells of Worcester in the 18th century. Some of the atmosphere of the period remains in the name The Marl, which can still be seen, although only after heavy rain, on the wall of a house in the Upper Tithing, which was once part of Alice Otley School, now merged with the Royal Grammar School, Worcester. 
In the corner of nearby St Oswald's graveyard, tucked away and almost forgotten, is an obelisk, a feature of the promenade which marked where the paths divided, going either to the sophistication of Little London or the rural retreat of the Way Tavern, a popular local pub until 1840, when housing took over part of the area and it became a lace factory. After the death of Trubshaw Withers, a substantial section of the grounds were bought by Mr T Blaney of Eversham, who gifted Sansom Fields Walk to the city for use by the inhabitants. However, by 1840, Sansom Fields was in danger of being lost to the city until part of the Trubshaw Withers estate was bought by the Worcester Public Pleasure Grounds Company and laid out by the eminent landscape gardener William Barrow. The gardens opened on July the 30th, 1859 and extended to 25 acres, comprising terraces, flower beds and promenades with a large central fountain, cricket ground, bowling green and archery butts. The corporation gave £1,000 towards the project and in return the public were allowed free access on one day of the week. But since the chosen day was Monday, this would have benefited few. The main entrance was at the present Arboretum Road and had a lodge house and imposing iron gates in medieval design made by the Hardy and Padmore foundry. The grounds included boundary walls with massive ornamental palisading and a fine fountain similar to the one at Whitley Court. There was also a crystal pavilion at the end of the main drive, now Arboretum Road. Either side of the drive stood two Russian guns taken during the Crimean War. <clears throat> the gardens were regarded by experts of the day as among the finest pleasure grounds in the provinces. Despite organising many attractions, including a three-day horticultural show, which drew 3,000 people, the Worcester Public Pleasure Grounds Company went bust. Worcester Corporation had the chance to buy the grounds off the new owner, the Worcester Engine Company, but despite a substantial offer of support from Lord Dudley of Whitley Court, who pledged £5,000 to the cause, the corporation decided not to proceed and the whole of the land was sold for building. The Crystal Pavilion was dismantled and sold and the guns removed to the forecourt of the Shire Hall, where they remained until taken for scrap at the outbreak of the Second World War. The main gates and some of the boundary railings were used at Worcester Royal Infirmary. The magnificent elms were sacrificed to widen the walk for carriages and the 18th century promenade became an ordinary street. The loss of the city was great and the grounds were quickly obliterated by an undistinguished housing estate, hop warehouses and two churches. The most prominent reminder of the pleasure grounds is the lodge on the corner of Sansom Walk and Arboretum Road, which still stands today. But can't you just imagine the genteel folk strolling down Sansom Field under their lace parasols, waving politely at one another. Nina Stibbe has something to say about that. Sue? <laughs> Waving as a greeting is in decline. Apparently, subtle nodding and eye movements are taking over. I'm a keen waver and will even lift a hand as I approach a person I'm about to meet. My daughter has started to wave back just to stop me waving at her. 
and when I wave at my son, he shouts, Yes, I can see you. You can stop now. <laughs> Could wave aversion be connected to the reluctance of the young to guide traffic? I was manoeuvring my mother out of tricky driveways from the age of six and loved it whereas my offspring have to be cajoled into it and their performance is unconvincing. Firstly, they stand in the least visible place and then it's almost impossible to decipher, let alone trust, the signals they make. Last night, my daughter stood in the shadows, moving one hand while looking at her phone in the other. In the end, I yanked on the handbrake and phoned her. It went to voicemail. And can you comprehend any of this text speak that the youngsters use all the time? The language is changing so fast, it's difficult to understand what anyone means anymore. Simon Williams seems to have come to terms with, though. Every so often, a really nifty new word slips into the lexicon. Brexit is a good example, neatly combining British and exit with the irony of an electoral X in the middle. Now we have upskirting, a perfect new transitive verb, vivid, concise and somehow Chaucerian. What would the male equivalent be? Down trousering, perhaps, though obviously you need a different lens. Some baby boomers suck their teeth at the reckless way Young peeps does mangle de lingo, but like Canute with the tide, it's a battle we're bound to lose. Who but the dazzling A.A. A. Gill could have conjured up the phrase, the full English, to describe the cancer that was killing him? We're lucky that young people talk to us at all, so who cares if their language is a bit a la carte? I grew up in a world where the grammar police were rampant. Mid-sentence, some crusty old pedant would interrupt my flow. My friend and I, boy, not me. Get over it, bro. There'd be a sharp intake of breath as harmless words like couch, lounge, serviette, etc. They were pariahs at the table. What a load of old shoe repairmen. Nancy Mitford and John Betjeman have a lot to answer for. Who cares what's you or non-you? What's wrong with fish knives or horse riding? Is putting the milk in first really such a gaff? Come on, hanging baskets aren't really that awful. There are better ways of judging people, like if they're funny or interesting or kind, or if they'll pop round with their jump leads on a wet evening when your battery's flat. Language is a runaway train. Trying to stop it is a waste of time. Like trying to mend your children's ripped jeans. Yes, we did. On the matter of word usage, you can't imagine how relieved I was to read that the strangers' dining room at Westminster has declared that the nation's favourite stodgy pudding will henceforth be called Spotted Richard. <laughs> but where will this pud purge end? Surely Eaton Mess and Jam Roly Poly must have registered hash justice for puds. I do hope this name change is quite unconnected to the news that staff working in Parliament were recently caught trying to access online pornography 160 times a day, if you please. Even on a stomach full of suet, 
That's every nine minutes. Order, order. (laughs) Meanwhile, I was pleased to hear that when President Trump was asked for his thoughts on Cambridge Analytica, he responded, pay her off. (laughs) I don't know if that's true or not. However, I have read that the name change at the House of Commons restaurant is not official. Merely banter among the waiting staff. You'd be relieved to hear that a spokesman for the restaurant was quoted as saying there are no changes to the way Spotted Dick is referred to on menus. However, we are not always able to control how staff may refer to dishes. I wonder how they get around cockavan. Or pea soup. Extra virgin olive oil. Or nuts. In the Telegraph magazine, Nina Stibber writes... I had lunch out with a friend a while ago and because I'd already had two breakfasts, I ordered a salad, thinking it would be light. What arrived was an enormous bowl full of spicy roasted vegetables, chickpeas and rice, all smothered in sauce. Is this the salad? I asked the waiter. Yes, madam, he said with a hint of an eye roll. Don't get me wrong, it was the sort of thing I liked to eat. I just wasn't sure it could reasonably be called a salad. I raised this with my companion, pointing out it contained nothing raw, nothing cold, no leaves of any kind, no cucumber, no tomato. She was defensive, it being her local cafe. Salads came in all shapes and sizes nowadays, she told me, and I'd lost touch with salads. She had the soup of the day. The friend and I returned to the cafe recently. This time it was the evening and I was hungry. Before we even got through the door, I was anticipating that salad. But alas, there were no salads on the menu. I asked the waiter what had happened to the butternut salad. I described it. It's huge and not actually like a salad. He knew it well. Ah, yes, he said. We call it butternut curry on the evening menu. (laughs) Ah, seeing things in you. It all depends on the circumstance. The actor Simon Callow is familiar with seeing things from a new perspective, as he wrote in December last year. My one-man performance of A Christmas Carol opened earlier this month in the Arts Theatre in the West End. And twice a day I find myself in the wings, bent in two halfway up the back stairs of that bijou playhouse as the house lights go down and the angelic voices of the King's College Choir give of their all and the uncannily convincing snow drifts down from the rigging. Regardless of how many times I've done the show, the choristers and the snow stir up some ancient and nameless emotion in me, and by the time I step onto the stage, I'm in the zone. I'm in Dickens' land and ready to speak those immortal first lines. Marley was dead, to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. A Christmas Carol was the first play I ever saw and it scared the hell out of the six-year-old me. Then, 20 years later, I played Bob Cratchit in a performance at the Lincoln Theatre Royal, where anything that could possibly go wrong did go wrong. In 2011, 
I did my one-man version of it, which I'm now doing again for the fifth time. Then, two years ago, something happened that made me think about the story all over again. I was asked to do the show in Wormwood Scrubs. I refused. To expect an audience unaccustomed to seeing plays, however captive, if they'll forgive the quip, to sit still and listen to one man for 75 minutes seemed to me to be a cruel punishment. There I go again. I suggested that it might be more enjoyable if I were to direct them in the show. Flyers went up announcing the project and a dauntingly large number turned up, 40 or so. We read the text, each person taking a paragraph. Some were shy, embarrassed even, but they all got what it was about. The story of a man forced to look at his life and embrace change. I had never been in a prison before and knew nothing about why these men were there, though I was told that one of the prisoners, a serial offender, was a gifted pianist. This man proved a draconian music director, fiercely barking at his fellow inmates as they struggled to master the carols. God rest ye, merry gentlemen, he snarled, banging the keyboard. Once they discovered that I expected them to learn the script, about half of the group disappeared. (laughs) The rest struggled on manfully. The day before the public performance, though, things were in danger of falling apart as the actors became ever more temperamental. I told them sternly that 100 people would be coming to watch and that they would feel foolish standing in front of them and not delivering a story. On the day, we arranged the lights and chairs into a huge circle in the prison chapel so the audience would be all around them. The excitement and nervous energy were palpable. Once they were on stage, every one of the actors concentrated fiercely on making the most of it. No one knew the lines, but they all knew what they were saying and said it in their own words. What was moving about Scrooge in the scrubs was not, as I had expected, that the prisoners were telling a story about themselves, but rather that they were telling one about someone else. For the duration of the show, they were relieved of the unending dialogue with themselves, about themselves, that must fill their every moment. By the end of the play, they seemed like new men. New Location, New Perspective Simon Williams was treated to a novel view of the painter L.S. Lowry back in the 1970s. Jim. When we played the Sunderland Empire for a week in 1974, I booked into a seaside hotel, which had all the hallmarks of sleaze you could hope for. The smell of frying, the worn carpets and wonky windows. I could have been in a Ken Loach film. At breakfast in the desolate dining room, I was greeted by a waitress of the Heidi High School of Hospitality. <laughs> On your own, are you, love? I said I was. I suppose you think you're the only famous person around here. I demurred modestly. Well, you're not. She led me to the table of the only other breakfaster. Mr. Larry, this is Captain James Bellamy, off the telly. There was no flicker of pleasure or recognition on the face of the great painter. The two of you can have your breakfast together, she said, trotting off to fetch me the tinned orange juice. It was my first taste of speed dating. (laughs) Larry shook his head. I'm sorry I don't have a television. No need to apologise, I answered. I don't have any of your paintings. (laughs) 
Our conversation didn't exactly sparkle. It was like Pinter on Valium. The front of his grey suit was a catalogue of food that had missed its target, and his shaving was far from thorough. He made letting oneself go look like an art form. At 87, why not? After breakfast, we went for a stroll along the seafront. Not for the air, he said, just to help him go. I tried hard to share his love of the world's dreariest coastline. The sea itself was nearly asleep. He was a melancholy soul, in mourning perhaps for the lost world of his paintings. The matchstick figures trudging through Pendlebury with their hats on. Why is it the pessimists always make me feel so cheery? The following morning my place was laid at his table. I told him about the play I was doing and he chuckled at my impersonation of Dora Bryan, the leading lady. I asked him if he'd like to see the matinee. Oh, good God, no, he answered, as if I'd suggested colonic irrigation. I can't imagine why you do it. Neither could I. I always enjoy the company of people who work alone, writers, painters, shepherds, for the thinking is unsullied by zeitgeist. At our last breakfast, I planned to ask him for a quick sketch as a memento, as we both knew our paths were unlikely to cross again. He died two years later. Suddenly, with his mouth full of English breakfast, he smiled. What I like about you, Simon, is that you haven't asked me to do a drawing for you. I shook my head. Lord, no! Who do such a thing? Five breakfasts with L.S. Lowry. Priceless. <laughs> I think I'd have asked for the painting. As you can imagine, many of Lowry's paintings have been made into jigsaws. But a jigsaw puzzle is not going to be high on the Christmas list of many visually impaired people. So John Plush has devised a sort of audio jigsaw. Now I'm not sure what to call this game, or is it a quiz or a puzzle? I think of it as a sort of audio jigsaw puzzle. Though there's no guiding picture and you can't move the pieces around to see if they fit like you can with a normal jigsaw puzzle. But this is how it works. I've recorded a very well-known piece of music, a very recognisable piece of music if I played it to you now, you'd probably know it instantly. And I've chopped it up into little bits like a jigsaw puzzle is all chopped up and then shuffled all the bits into a very unmusical jumble. If this were an ordinary jigsaw, you could rearrange the pieces until you could see what the original looked like. Here, you need to try and spot little phrases that give you a clue as to what the original sounded like, and then guess the title. I assure you, all the pieces are here, but, as Eric Morecambe famously put it, not necessarily in the right order. Was that too obvious? Some people would say yes, and others no. I'll play it again, this time with a few of the pieces ready assembled to give you a bit of help. Oh, and here's a clue. It's a popular music hall song from the early 20th century. 
And if you need to hear it again, press the track back button on your player. Or if you just want confirmation that you were right all along and want to get on to the next item, keep listening, because here it is with all of the pieces in the right order. Written in 1919 by Fred Lee and Charles Collins, and made popular by the music hall darling Mary Lloyd, My Old Man Said Follow the Van is said not to be about simply moving house, but actually doing a moonlight flit. Did you get that? I struggled at first, but then it clicked. Our intrepid but slightly dim treasure hunters have their own puzzle to solve. How to get out of that cave? But is there gold in them thy hills? Something woke me. I nearly jumped out of my skin. We were surrounded by dark-eyed men, cloths wound round their faces and knives in their hands. Steady on! Jerry threw open his hands in a gesture of surrender. Without a word, they pulled us to our feet, lifted our packs and hustled us along the tunnel. And before long, we were back out in the open, just as it was growing light, and facing a fog-shrouded valley. After another forced march, we were bundled into a round tent and the flap fastened behind us. Jerry let out a long breath. I wonder where the hell we are! Well, if you remember Jerry, he was never at a loss for long, and while I would have been happy to settle for a few hours' sleep in order to face whatever was in the future and I wasn't expecting anything pleasant, he was all set for long discussion on our whereabouts and the origins of our captors. You've got the map, I told him crossly. You're supposed to be the expert. Hang on, old man, I did get you to the cave. And much good as it done us, I snapped. There was no treasure, and I can't see these people are overjoyed at our arrival. No fatted calves, if you know what I mean. They hadn't killed us. I thought you spoke the language, I pointed out. That's what you said. A slight look of embarrassment crossed his face. Not familiar with all the dialects, but I did catch the odd word or two. Oh, yes... There was no chance to continue the conversation because the flap was opened briefly and some bread, a pitcher of water and a handful of dates were pushed through the slit. They clearly didn't mean us to starve and I suppose that was a bonus, although I'd have felt better if we'd had any idea of their future plans. As they'd taken our packs, there was no way of supplementing our diet but at least they'd left us the torch. While I took the opportunity for a nap, Jerry studied the map. I think I know where we are, he informed me when I woke, and I have a rough idea of a dialect they might know. Bully for you, I grumbled, and perhaps you can find some way of getting us out of here. We both had mobile phones, but they were useless. Wherever we were, we were certainly beyond the reach of any signal, and as far as I was concerned, we might as well have been on the moon. Next time they open the door, try one of your few words on them. We didn't have long to wait. Suddenly, the opening was pulled apart, and we were dragged to our feet and hustled outside and thrust into the centre of a ring of tribesmen. 
Talk about bristling with weapons. Porcupines couldn't have done better. I left Jerry to do the negotiations. After all, he worked for the Foreign Office and should have been red hot on diplomacy. But after a few minutes, I could tell he wasn't getting anywhere. The main thrust of the conversation seemed to be whether they would kill us now or wait until some superior chief arrived and let him do it. Well, I said once we were back in the tent, doesn't seem we're going anywhere fast. Have you any idea what they propose to do with us? I'd long ago come to the conclusion the whole expedition was a mistake and the sooner we were on our way home, the better. Jerry shook his head and rubbed his chin. Sorry, mate, I think we're in a bit of a pickle. Couldn't you understand anything, they said, I pleaded. Odd word. Jerry thrust his hands under his armpits. The cold was getting to us. They seem to think we might be Russians or even Chinese. Do I look Chinese? I had once been in the Mikado, but that was Japanese anyway. Look at me. Spies. Spies? Who for? How the hell should I know? I tried to explain that we're British. God save the Queen and all that. I don't think it cut much eyes. A couple of hours after that, we heard a scrabbling at the edge of the tent. It was dark outside and everything had gone quiet. Jerry put his finger to his lips and indicated that I should stay still. After a few moments, I could just pick out a body worming its way under the felt coverings. Coca-Cola! The intruder was a boy, probably about nine or ten, with a red and white headscarf and a gap between his teeth. He smiled and pointed to himself. Coca-Cola! he repeated. Jerry shook his head and gestured to the pitcher of water. Dollar! Jerry shook his head again. The boy pointed to Jerry's jacket. Dollar! A sudden thought struck me. Jerry, I whispered, I think he thinks we're Americans. British! Jerry started humming the national anthem. <laughs> it was the boy who shook his head this time. Then he pointed to the tent flap and pulling Jerry's jacket repeated, Coca-Cola! He tugged at Jerry again and getting to his feet pulled him towards the space he'd wriggled through. He wants us to go with him, I muttered. Then, stretching my arms wide, I tried to make airplane sounds. The boy nodded vigorously and grabbed my jacket. Coca-Cola! He repeated again, and then, Dollar! Then, seeing we were reluctant to move, drew his finger across his throat, then gestured upwards. We got the point. Our throats would be cut when the morning came. After that, we wasted no time. The boy, whoever he was, was offering us the chance to escape. So with no second thought, we wriggled through the gap and into the bitter night. Putting his finger to his lips, he led us between the tents and towards a line of horses. I didn't know if Jerry had ever been on a horse, and it was a long time since I had, but we weren't in a position to argue. And luckily, the boy had had the forethought to bring some heavy coats, or we would have frozen to death. Jerry told me afterwards the stars were astounding, but I never looked up. I was too busy clinging to the wiry mane of the pony and hoping I wasn't going to fall off. It seemed we rode forever, but eventually we rounded the shoulder of an outcrop and the boy pulled up. He pointed at the sky, dismounted and led us into a sort of cave. Huddled in our furs against the wall, we tried to snatch a few hours' sleep before the boy urged us on again. All the time I was expecting to hear sounds of pursuit... But when we remounted, the landscape was as bare as a bald head and about as inviting. I asked Jerry where he thought we were going. Having a clear, old boy, he told me. But judging by the position of the sun, I thought we were going northwest. 
Coco, as I christened him, didn't seem very clear of our direction either, but waved his hand generally and pointed into the middle distance. Well, I'll not go into the details of our journey. The boy produced some hard cheese and even harder bread, and with that we had to make do for the next three days. In some ways it was a repeat of our search for the cave, only this time I had the nasty feeling we were escaping with our lives, and although Coco had somehow made us understand he'd loosed all the horses before we set off, I didn't think it would take all that long to round them up, discover our absence and come after us. And I was right. Late that afternoon, when we'd been jogging along comfortably, if you can call it that, for about three hours, Coco looked behind us and gave a wild shout, then spurred his pony into a gallop. After a swift glance backwards, we did the same. We were going uphill, the animals scrabbling for a foothold on the slippery rocks, our breath streaming in clouds as we struggled to maintain our balance until at last we were over a crest, and looking down I saw smoke and the signs of civilization. We urged the ponies down the slope. Meanwhile, our pursuers had stopped on the ridge. Half an hour later, saddle sore and exhausted, we tumbled off in the outskirts of a filthy village. It seemed like paradise. The next few days are a bit hazy. I went down with a fever, and by the time I was back to taking notice, Jerry seemed to have got things sorted out. That's the F.O. for you. Coco had managed to get it across that returning home would interfere with his human rights, and he wanted to go to America. You could almost see his eyes flash up dollar signs when the states were mentioned. As for me, I tell you, I was thankful when the plane touched down at Heathrow, and I was safely back in town. "'Where on earth have you been?' my agent grumbled. "'I've been looking for you everywhere.' I waved an arm vaguely. "'Central Asia.' Well, it's South Pacific now, Plymouth, so get your shorts on. A year or so later, I was catching up on a bit of telly one afternoon while I was on tour, and there on the screen was Jerry, perched on a camel with a mining expedition accompanied by a young man in a red and white headscarf. The line of hills in the background resembled a man asleep with his mouth open. I hadn't seen any gold or fabulous jewels in that cave, but I did remember the sticky black sand inside the entrance. So there was treasure after all. Oil. Them Dar Hills by Angela Lanyon was read there by our own Barney Burnham and dramatised by John Plushed. Well, that brings us to the end of what we hope was an enjoyable edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine, in which you heard the voices of Jenny Tansy, Goodbye. Sue Ward, Bye-bye. Jim Ward, Goodbye. and me, Patrick. And a big thanks has to go to our producer, John Plush, on behalf of whom we'll all say goodbye until the next time. Bye! Bye-bye! Bye! Bye. Bye.